right, Sophie Shunk, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Thanks. I'm excited for it. I'm so excited to chat with you. So I was down at Orlando at the Olympic trials. You are somebody who had maybe some of the most vocal support and name recognition <laughs> of anyone down there. I think it was it was really unique for me. I, was, I had seen you run actually a couple times at that point as someone who volunteered at the McCurdy Micro Marathon. Uh, I was like at tables 14 to 15 from a water station perspective. And then someone who's at the the finish line of CIM doing a live broadcast nice. for people like yourself who qualified at, qualified there. But at that time, seeing you come through, so many fans of yours were, were <laughs> chanting your name. What was it like having that kind of support at one of the biggest races of your life? It was pretty incredible. And I think it truly got me going through it because I was in, in a tough spot physically before that race, unfortunately. But I really wanted to just make the most of the day and, and seeing all the cheers and like things I didn't expect. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Yeah, and we're not going to go. I think some of these trials recaps that we have done, we've kind of gone chronologically. Like, tell me about mm -hmm. like basically going like the last five years, right? Like leading into the previous trials and then coming into this four year cycle. Um, I think with this one, we're going to take it a little differently. People who've been listening to the Perfect. podcast, just because you've had such an interesting life from an <laughs> athletic perspective, also as a type one diabetic, and mm -hmm. from a work perspective as well. Um, so let's just. We'll dive in a little bit of the trials right now, but then kind of really expand it out and zoom out. So you were going into the trials exactly how you, maybe you had dreamed of going in. Just give the people uh, a little heads up on like kind of what was going on with you uh, heading into the race. Yeah, so I well, I had done three back. Well, it was my third training cycle of a marathon. So I did McCurdy, as you mentioned, and CIM. And quite frankly, I, I came, we'll probably get into it, not from a marathon running background. So I think... Until this year, I thought I had no shot at the 237. And so what ended up happening is once I realized, you know what, I think I can do this. Let's go for it. Um, unfortunately, missed it at McCurdy and then had CIM as a backup. But I think just doing three cycles back to back. I mean, I wouldn't I coach now and I wouldn't coach anyone to run three high level marathons within four months. So I think the inevitable happened. We, we tried to prolong it, my coach and I, as much as we could. But we knew like the overtraining was coming. Um, and so I think I, I went into it a bit overtrained just from those two big blocks and I started to get some shin splints right before it, of course. So it reminded me of high school track because <laughs> I think that's the last time I had shin splints. But, um, anyways, we, we tried to do everything we could just to prolong like me getting to that overtraining mark and, and the shin splints. But, um, I mean, injuries, life happens as I'm sure many listening know and, and so it kind of became a decision, like, let's make the most of it. Let's enjoy the experience. We know I'll be back. Like, I got here. I fought to get there. And you never know when that gun goes off. It could have gone the other way, and everything could have gone away. But, yeah. But obviously, you wanted to start that race. <clears throat> that is for I sure. Did. Talk, talk to me about not just the <laughs> idea of starting it, but also of finishing it. Because you're in a situation where there are a lot of DNFs that on, on on trials day. You're actually running with someone for a while who, who didn't end up finishing. Um, Megan, <laughs> who's um, is yep. someone who's about, about to give birth and who has her own amazing running story. That <laughs> right. is for sure. So talk to me about the the motivation and drive not only to start this race, something that you've been training for for a while, but also to finish it. Yeah, I think what the starting, like the decision to start came down to was just, I had nothing to lose and I had everything I think to give to the community that you can still finish a race on a hard day. And I, I kind of had to swallow my pride of it knowing it wouldn't be 
um, like what I'm capable of, but I, I had to just really, like, I, I had some hard chats with my friends and my coach the days before, like, what can we get out of this? And it's being in that environment, like learning and, and knowing like we got there and put in all the work to get there. And then who can we inspire to still get out there on like a day that, you know, your body is not maybe fully cooperating, but you can still go out, smile, have fun. Uh, embrace the crowds and my family came out to watch and and I think um for f- the decision to finish I don't think that was ever out of the question unless they were gonna like pull me off the course or if my legs completely broke <laughs> um because if anyone knows me and just like it's a family trait of ours if we start something we're gonna finish it uh and and I there was a point in the race I was like you know this is kind of hard to just finish dead last in this type of race but um I, I became to the point that, you know, I don't have any shame in it. And, and the people I met along the way, I never would have met them if I didn't start and finish the race. Yeah. And, and also, like, it's like being the lowest score in, like, the All-Star game. <laughs> it's like, you made the All-Star game. This is amazing. Yeah. Like, who cares how many points you score, right? And it's the same thing. Like, you made the trials. Like, who cares what place you get in? Like, this is right. an incredible accomplishment. Obviously, you're a competitive person. Like, there's mm-hmm. no way to, like, get to this point if you aren't. So certainly you want to have the best day possible at all times. But still, the fact that you're there, um, it must be a little bit different in terms of like, Hey, if a race doesn't go well, and it's just like a typical race, it must've felt a little different than it not going well for something that's so august and celebratory as the trials. Right. Absolutely. All right. So one thing that we talked about a little bit in the intro, um, and then also like just quickly before we talked about the trials was the fact that you're a type one diabetic. Now we've talked about this topic and kind of two separate times in the podcast history. Uh, one was a couple months ago with Michael Obara, who's a master's runner who actually lives near me. Uh, we had a fun conversation. And then several years ago, I think maybe five years ago now, we had Eric Tozer on the pod after he did seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, which is talk about uh, <laughs> an, an endeavor. Um, but it's interesting to me, uh, the, the two people who we've had on before today and now yourself all have so many similarities in terms of the way you approach life, how, you know, how dialed in you are to certain things, even your professions, right? In terms of Michael being an engineer, you being an engineer as well, Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. Can you just walk us through, I guess, the beginning of your journey with type 1 diabetes when you got diagnosed at age 16? Yeah, I can. And and I actually know Eric really well. We we lead um Diabetes Sports Project, so I'm sure he mentioned that a, a while ago and um yeah, so he was actually one of the first people that inspired me to keep going in my endurance sports and when I really didn't know any better. Um but yeah, going back to my diagnosis, so I was in high school, I was a sophomore in high school, running track and fields, playing soccer. Back then, I, I didn't go above an 800, so very short sprints, uh, but I was a very active kid, and, and what happened is I just started to have all the characteristic signs. I was probably tripling my calories, but losing weight, going to the bathroom all the time. Uh, we actually didn't pick up on it, my family, because we don't have a history of type 1, which is a bit odd, so I was sort of an anomaly. I must have gotten an infection. We still don't really know. Uh, but yeah, so I was in high school and then I was diagnosed in 2008 and from there, um, it was hard for me to manage running and diabetes. I I don't know if it was just, I couldn't figure out like my support crew and just tracking things and, and like the first couple years of your diagnosis and when the tech wasn't as good as it is now, it's really hard to know what those sugars are doing during a running event. So uh, goalkeeping in soccer seemed to be a little bit easier to manage. And, uh, so I stuck with that, played, 
uh, D1 college soccer at Marquette University. Um, went 2,000 miles away from home. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, I was from there, and, and so my parents weren't thrilled about the idea of moving that far away with, with type 1, but I think it was the best thing for me because I was a shy high school um, female, and, and being diagnosed with type 1 and you're trying to fit in, it's it's hard. And so I needed just like that restart. So when I went out to Marquette, uh, I kind of came out of my shell and, and started opening up more about my type one. Cause one, like when you're playing D one sports, as you know, like it, you can't hide things like that or, or it's going to come back to bite you. Like you're doing three days. And if you're not like completely on top of your blood sugars, like you could be sitting on the sideline and, and then that's just, viewed as a weakness by your head coach. So you have to like stay on top of it from the more, the second you wake up to when you go to bed. And and so my trainers were really good at like checking in on me and, and we like came up with a lot of ways to manage it. So like diluting my Gatorade, so I wasn't spiking and um, just having snacks. And uh, it turns out I met a couple of other type ones at Marquette. One was in cross country. And then the other was a faculty member who I actually didn't um, get close with till I was in grad school when I was done playing soccer and they encouraged me to join the run with the president uh, running team and I was like okay so they're all training for a half marathon and, and they encouraged me to do my first half and uh, between him and my my friend who had run cross country I was like okay I need all of the tips for running distance because uh, this is something I could not master before and, and it was not easy like I remember the first long run um by myself, I had to like stop at a gas station and get sugar and, but just all the learning and the tracking and the using the tech to your advantage versus, um, like it working against you is the stuff I learned. And, um, they eventually encouraged me to run my first marathon. And so with the support of like having others in that type one space, it, it really, um, started to help my blood sugars then hurt it. So like, you've probably met like other type ones, as you, you said, like that use endurance exercise as a form of medication and insulin. So it really helps stabilize our blood sugars. Yeah. And how does timing of your, um, your workouts and, you know, whether that's from the soccer perspective, you're also a very good triathlete. And now you're also obviously a very accomplished runner. So during your athletic journey at, at each stage, how has been the timing of workouts affected your blood sugar and all the other domino effects that come with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a good point. Um, in terms of timing, so different types of exercise affect your blood sugars differently. So aerobic, and once you get used to being in that trained state, like your basal metabolism is used to like that low intensity aerobic exercise. So as an endurance runner, you're doing a lot of easy miles, right? At like 60 to 70% and like an hour ish to two hours. And so that's where your, your body's kind of in that homeostasis and it's pretty predictable what the blood sugar is going to do so that you could fit in kind of anywhere during your day. Uh, it's when you're starting to change the intensity, it's tough. And so like adding in like track workouts or speed workouts or different type forms of cardio or weightlifting, uh, you start to see those spikes a little bit from adrenaline and then also some dips like later in the day. Uh, so, I tend to like to do um, aerobic exercise in the morning and or in the afternoon when my blood sugars are a little bit higher and then I know it'll bring it down uh, steady. 
And then for anaerobic, I know I'll get those spikes. So you could always like couple like anaerobic exercise or track workouts with like a lower intensity, like afternoon session. And it helps like level out um, the spikes. And then just the feeling super important. So uh, I don't tend to have just straight carbs. I always mix like fat and protein in there to slow the absorption so I don't get big spikes. And that's hard on some people's uh, digestion. Uh, luckily for myself, I, I could eat like a burger and then go run. I, I don't know. I've never had digestion, digestion issues. So helps out. Yeah. You didn't need any more hurdles, right? In <laughs> yeah. terms of like the yeah. things that you were putting in your body. So thank goodness for mm-hmm. that. How has managing type one diabetes and your evolution in that process that obviously is coupled with the uh, technological advances that have come along the way, how has that helped you decide which sports to pursue because you've chosen different kinds of sports. You're obviously an incredibly active person and there's a lot of things that you could be doing from an athletic perspective. Yeah, great point. So I had mentioned that in high school, it kind of put me into that soccer route, uh, not the running route. And that was mainly, well, I think I, I actually loved soccer more than I did running at that point, but it it seemed easier to manage because it was start stop. I could have my devices like by the goal box, so as a goalkeeper, and it was more accessible. And um, that was when we didn't have like CG. Well, I didn't have a CGM yet, so a continuous glucose monitor. Now I wear it on my arm, and it's um, live every three to five minutes, so we can see it. Like I can have it on my Garmin watch, and I didn't have that back then. It was more finger prick, and and you couldn't just get a continuous reading. And so running and having to finger prick yourself was a bit different. Uh, soccer, since there's starts and stops, you can uh, do that a little bit easier. Um, now, I I really don't feel like I have any limitations. Uh, I think the biggest thing is is like if I'm off from running and, and I want to try a new sport or just like hop in the pool or go, I don't know, play volleyball with friends, it can, when you're not this is part of my thesis. When you're not trained in something and you go do a new sport, your body kind of goes into that fight or flight, especially if you're not doing it for fun. Like if you're in like a beer drinking league, <laughs> but if you're in a competitive league and, and then you, you do a new sport, your body like wants to burn glucose right away because uh, it's in that fight or flight. So you can have like more lows and you have to be prepared for that. Yeah. And you also have a demanding job. You're a systems engineer and one of the one of the the stats that I found the most, the most like crazy stat I heard in 2023 was like how many how many calories like someone burns like like a chess champion right like say a chess champion like during a like a competition <laughs> right like they burn like five to ten thousand calories a day just from like the brain processing that is involved in that. I was like, this is astounding. Wild. I would never <laughs> guess this in a million years, but it makes me think like someone like yourself who has a demanding job that is mentally uh, and academically challenged. Academically is not the right word, but you know what I'm getting at. When you have jobs like that, how does that play into the glucose burning? Because that's one of the things that we always hear all the time is that like glucose not only fuels your your um, your Brain. muscles when you're you know an active person, but it also is the primary source of um, uh, for your brain as well. Great question. I'm glad you got into it. So, um, yeah, so your brain requires, I think it's like 30 grams of glucose per hour to function. So anytime you're affecting that cognitive load, you obviously need glucose to your brain. And that's partly why, uh, like, so when my blood sugar goes low, 
and all my friends and, and family know this, like I, I have struggled to think and it's really like scary and you can't just like tell people that right. Um, in the moment, but so that's why management is so important. And, um, especially with a demanding job, like you do have to like fuel for your job. I also, um, a lot of people that are type one, when you're under stress, so like say you have a big work deadline, you're giving a, a talk, a presentation, your blood sugar actually goes up uh, because of the, ca the catecholamine response. So it's actually a balance of those spikes in adrenaline, which, because uh, your, your system basically dumps glucose into the blood for that fight or flight response that I already mentioned, but it also is needing the glucose to the brain. So it's this balance that can really catch you if you're not uh, ahead of it. Um, yeah, but I think it just, I've found little ways and, and I tell my co coworkers this and give them heads up. Like sometimes I just need to go for a walk. Like if it's a stressful work day and my blood sugars are more, are like on the higher end because it's stressful, I'll just go for a walk and it really helps. Uh, and then vice versa, like always having snacks if if it's a kind of just get get your work done day and you need that cognitive load and that brain power. Now, going back to the high school um, days, I heard you mention this on the three two one go podcast, which was a really good interview. Um, Thanks. You touched on the the one of the immediate things that happened once you realized uh, that you were type one diabetic and you started going on insulin was that your body started functioning in a more natural way, just in terms of like, you know, retaining calories and, you know, body weight and things like that. Cause you mentioned like you were like tripling your caloric intake and you were losing weight, which is a, mm -hmm. a crazy place to be. Can you talk to me about what it felt like as someone who was maybe whose body was settling into its more natural weight, but dealing with that as a teenager and that's the, 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 the difficulty surrounding that sort of, um, situation. Yeah, it, it was, I, I tell people like high school is not my shining years. And, and a lot of it was because of this. And now I really enjoy talking to high schoolers about this because I think the mental health around diabetes as a teenager is not addressed enough. And so, um, yeah, exactly. So when you're diagnosed with diabetes, depending on how long you go undiagnosed. And I think in my case, it was longer than we realized because I was burning so much glucose. It never got to a toxic state where I like had the DKA, like the, the pass out and you go to the hospital. Um, so yeah, you're, you're basically used to eating all this, um, like extra food because you can't retain what you're eating because you don't have that insulin to bring it into your cells for energy. So you're just passing everything through and it makes you like really hungry. And then when you start taking insulin, your body's all of a sudden like, oh, we can absorb this into our cells and use it for energy. But since you're used to eating like triple because you didn't have enough energy, now you're like taking all that in at once. And, and it's like a shock to the system. And um, yeah, so I, I added the weight I probably needed. But when you do that so quickly in um, your high school years, people notice and you know how high schoolers are these days. I mean, it's, you're trying to fit in. You can't just explain, oh, well, I have type one diabetes. That's why I like look different now, or I look healthier, but like back then healthier is, is all relative, right? Like you're, you, you're like caught up in social media and, and all those things. So it was a tough couple of years. And, and luckily I had my academics and, uh, sports to still, um, hold on to. And, and those luckily weren't like affected greatly other than like my junior and senior year, I wasn't 
um, running at the level I was my freshman and sophomore year, but I was still able to play soccer at a high level. So I was lucky to have that and my teammates and they, they understood to an extent, but it, it was hard. And I don't think I really truly found the happiness again until college. And um, now uh, when I go talk to high schoolers, I really like to open up about this and like some of the coping mechanisms you can do and just like having honest conversations with your peers and be like, hey, like, these are my symptoms of a low blood sugar. This is a high blood sugar. Like, please, like check in on me if you like see this happening. And, and then they feel more a part of what you're going through. And it, and it really helps with that. Yeah, it's almost like a blessing and a curse of having mm-hmm. a, um, you know, a disease where people don't know that you have it when they see you, right? So exactly. obviously there are certain times where maybe that's a blessing. Exactly. Other times where like having to explain it all the time or things like that and just make people mm-hmm. aware, obviously it creates, you know, puts a burden on you. And also just like having this, that situation, especially as a teenager, where you're, you know, either people are treating you differently and or you're just going to be even more self-conscious than you normally yeah. would be as a teenager. Like it just, it really is so difficult. So thank you so much for, for bringing that up. And is that one of the, the address, one of the areas that you address as part of the nonprofit that you helped found? Absolutely. And so we're really into getting as many diverse ages and, and athletes and sports as possible, just so we can have build that community of support uh, for teenagers and uh, et cetera. And so at, like next month, I'm actually giving a talk for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Um, and I'm doing a teen track and it's going to be centered around how to turn your diabetes as a teenager into an advantage, not um, a disadvantage. And really it makes us like uh, kind of are on another level, like you're accomplishing a disease and you're able to play high level sports. Yeah. And one of the things is that it requires, obviously, is to be completely in tune with your body and being proactive to make sure that you're doing the right things for it, which from an athletic perspective, that sort of habit is a huge benefit, right? Like no matter what someone's going on with their life, like being able to, to do those things proactively instead of reactively, or maybe even not at all for some <laughs> of us is, you know, can, can be a limiter. Right. So I would think at some point, once you got used to the kind of habits around your type one diabetes um, from, um, you know, a, a dietary perspective and also in terms of like being able to self-regulate and figure out exactly how scheduling works and all of that, that it would ultimately be the pathway to being your best athletic self as well. Having those habits kind of learned and habituated. Absolutely. Hey guys, our podcast is brought to you by V.O2, a coaching app based on the science of legendary coach Jack Daniels. Unlike most other running apps, V.O2 is truly personalized. It understands the type of runner you are, what you're training for, and how to maximize your effort. It also gives you control over your training, leveraging your feedback with fine-tuned training, and it leads to continuous progression. Not only that, you get a really good picture on how your time in a certain event or certain workout can be extrapolated to other paces and other times, right? So if you're like, hey, I have a recent 5K result, what does that mean in terms of like my threshold pace or what I could run a half marathon in and things like that? It really does work well. And when you're trying to set your your paces 
as a runner, it can get a little tricky sometimes. So getting that pace range is really helpful. Again, not just a pace time, a pace range. And that is exactly what V.02 can provide you. Try out their fully automated V. Adaptive Trainer and start syncing your training paces to your Apple Watch, Coros, or Garmin. You can use code Rambling to save 20% off after your 14 day free trial. That's right, a free trial and then 20% off on V.02 today. Just visit v.02.com and you'll be all set. All right, so let's switch back to running. So after college, um, you start doing, doing triathlon and you're doing really well in triathlon, right? You do uh, qualified for was it the, the Olympic trial, Olympic distance world championships, which is a huge honor, right? You're doing that, which is amazing. What brought you more towards the running side of things as opposed to sticking with the triathlon side of things? <laughs> bringing me back to my triathlon days. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so I switched to triathlon in, in college uh, because I was dealing with running injuries, which I think a lot of triathletes, that's how they get into triathlon. Uh, so I had met one of my really good friends at the time in the pool, and we both were going through just that grad school stress, so taking it out on the pool, the bike, uh, whatnot. And Marquette had a pretty good triathlon team that would travel around Wisconsin, so um, that was kind of my outlet when I couldn't run all the time. I, that, that's when I jumped into distance running, started to have the stress-related injuries that I wasn't used to because uh, I wasn't a runner, like distance runner by trade, right? More like short distance. So that kept me in triathlon. And yeah, so the, the Olymp I think it was the Olympic distance uh, national championships was always in Milwaukee. So that was my hometown, uh, where Marquette is. So, um, jumped into that and yes, somehow got into the top 10 mainly because of the running part and, um, made it to the world team, but had moved to San Diego before the world championships and joined like this pro. I actually was living with her at the time and, um, basically started overtraining. So that's where I learned all about overtraining and um, had my first stress fracture, I believe. So I did not compete at world championships that year, but learned a lot in the process. And uh, I think what happened is, is I was trying to still balance high level triathlon and my job at the time at Dexcom was causing me to work 60 to 80 hours a week and then go to the pool uh, go run in the morning, do doubles. So I was basically training from like five to 8am working from like eight to six, swimming from six to eight, not going to bed till 10. And I just kept breaking and getting those stress injuries. So had to make a change and realized I love running and joined a running team out in San Diego and then stuck with more of the running side. Gotcha. Oh, that makes, mm -hmm. that makes sense. You bring up a good point about how running injury cross training is like the entryway to triathlon. Like, mm -hmm. it, it makes me think like maybe, maybe we'll see every once in a while you'll see an article about like, no, 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 push through the injuries. It's probably just like the triathlon lobby trying to hurt runners to bring more yeah. people into triathlon. <laughs> yeah. I still love that. I can swim and bike when I need to, uh, but it doesn't, it just doesn't give me the, the joy and the, I don't know how to describe it, but the joy and the high that running does. So it is kind of funny that you <laughs> made that realization or that determination when you were in San Diego, which is like the triathlon capital oh, of North America. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I think the other thing I, I was hanging out with a lot of triathletes and this is between us, but their lifestyles just seemed so like, like it revolved around triathlon and they were all in like relationships that 
it, it was hard for them to spend time with their families. And I'm like, I don't think this is going to be me if I stick to it. So I wanted more of kind of a work-life balance and training balance. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, and, and this is an anti-triathlon take. It's just the way it goes. That's like, if you want to be a high-level triathlete, it is a second job. Just from an hour's perspective, like you need to put in 30 hours a week if you yep. want to be a high-level triathlete. And you're like, well, that's like basically, a, that is literally a full-time job for some people in addition to actually having a full-time job. I yep. and Isn't it like the, a common like triathlon memes? Like you buy a new triathlon bike, you should also like, you know, like that's where like, like divorce, divorce attorneys should just like set up shop where you can buy a high-end triathlete bike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I say that as someone who like, that's why I got out of college basketball coaching. Because like every college yeah. basketball coach I knew was divorced. Yeah. It was like, all right, this is not, this this is the way I want to go. Same with soccer. All right. So let's talk about your evolution as a runner and in where, where it's applicable, you know, how you understanding type one diabetes, your body and the advances in the technology come along um, with this, because not only were you a high level athlete in college, we should say like, not only did you play soccer at Marquette, Marquette was one of the best soccer teams in the country. So this was yeah. not just like, hey, I played college sports. Like you were <laughs> on one of the best teams in the country for three straight years, which is a remarkable feat. There's no question about that. And it's been, especially getting in triathlon right after college, sports was a major part of your life for a very long time. So as you're getting into running, how much of it was, hey, I just need to be active because that's what I always have been versus having st- specific and strategic goals around performance? Great question. So I always loved running. uh, And even throughout um, being a goalkeeper, even the strength and conditioning part was one of my favorites. My strength coach at Marquette, like to this day is one of my most influential people. And he truly valued hard work. And like, he like rewarded people that worked their butts off, like to to get to the next level, even if they weren't naturally as talented. So I think that ingrained in me just this like drive to like wake up every morning and want to exercise, want to do some form of exercise. And that became running in grad school because I joined the the running group that kind of got me out of bed every morning um, as I was working through my thesis. And, and I don't, I don't know, uh, you know how that goes. You need an outlet or else you just, yeah, it gets pretty lonely quick as you're sitting writing day in, day out research. So running became that like stress relief outlet. And and then of course, coupled with, I think my competitive mindset, I started hearing about these races around Milwaukee that they, people were training for. And, and so I started jumping into those and, and of course you're like, oh, I'm just going to go for a run. But then you start saying, oh, like how fast can I get? So when we started doing some half marathon training, it was a couple of those that I was running with, I like, Hey, I think you could go sub 125 and then it became sub 124 and then 123. And then like, you should jump in a marathon. And I thought it was crazy at the time, but they're like, you should just see what you can do. And so once I jumped into more of the like time-based goals, the first marathon, I, I honestly <laughs> went out with the intention of just running it. And then my watch died and I somehow got caught in a pack with our um, ex cross country coach at Marquette. And he's like, just stick with me. And, and so thank goodness, I didn't know how or what pace I was running, because I probably would have looked at that pace and been like, oh, I should not be running this. And turns out I stuck it out. And after that, so that was in 2016 timeframe. And that was the trials before 
the trials a year before the last one. So the LA trials and, um, it turns out, so I got third in that race and the top two girls were trying to hit that 245. And I didn't even know that was like a thing back then, but I, I ended up in a 252 and someone's like, you really should think about that 245 in four years. So that started that seed. And, um, then, I mean, we already talked about it. I kind of spiraled into some overtraining because your first instinct as a new runner is like, well, how do I get faster? Let's add on the miles. And that's not necessarily the case if you haven't built up that resilience because injuries happen and I hadn't been used to those stress injuries yet. Uh, so that is when I first, I think, started that competitive mindset in running. And then when I moved out to San Diego and joined, well, so there's the triathlon mixed in there too. But when I joined the running team in San Diego, they all were kind of ex-collegiate runners. And so used to that competitive environment, joined cross country. That was a blast. I think it, it was like the marriage between my soccer background and um, competitive spirit for running and not having to like necessarily hit a time. You're just racing for place. So I loved cross country out in San Diego. And, and I think that's where that like, okay, how fast can we go? When's the next trials? Uh, let's, let's do it. And I've heard you talk as well about being a type one diabetic, recovering from injuries is a more prolonged process mm -hmm. than people who aren't type one diabetic. So how have you managed that process in terms of learning what it means in terms of maybe estimates about when you can return and also being dialed into your body to know when you can push and when you have to back off. Uh, as you mentioned, like when you would, were training for triathlon, you had some overuse injuries, which obviously mm -hmm. can be, you know, especially if you're having potential stress reactions can really be a prolonged process. Yeah. Um, as a type one, it's just known that you heal slower and it really does humble you when the injuries happen. And, and I've learned I need to catch it sooner. And I'm still not perfect to this day. <laughs> uh, but as you start to have those signs, like you really do have to dial it back and try to cross train. And, and I do like talking to endocrinologists and doctors, they usually like recommend for stress injuries, adding like one to two weeks of healing compared to what is normal. And, and again, we're like athletes, right? So that also helps the healing process expedite, but you have to couple it with the blood sugar management. And really when I'm healing from an injury, like if you're having those highs and lows, it's, it's going to just prolong it further. Um, even like right now I'm dealing with uh, a slight injury and, and my cuts don't even heal that fast. So it's, it's eye opening and it's something I forget about. And, and I think it's something to be very cognizant of. So 2020 trials were put on the radar also, the injuries kind of kind of set in kind of early on in that process. Um, I guess what what were some of the I guess as that as that cycle you know continued to move on, what was it like for you going for that that standard, and how much did it play a part in your overall uh, performance slash races you chose? Okay, twenty twenty. So yeah, when I joined that team in San Diego, many of the girls were going for that standard at, at um, a couple of the races, so grandmas and. I think Chicago and then CIM. And so I just jumped on the train. And, and again, they were all collegiate runners. So used to that high mileage. And my coach at the time, I think we, we didn't like truly look at my training from the past and probably should have given me a bit more speed work than mileage. But I was able to hang with these girls and I still love the long run. But I was dealing with injuries. So I, I missed grandmas. And then we had to have a short training block for CIM. I got into shape quick for that 245, but 
Um, I didn't have the experience uh, of a marathon and how to feel properly with my type one. And I think that's the first time I dealt with high blood sugars during a race and ended up cramping and running a 249 in 2019. So uh, missed it. And, and I think all my other friends that I had been training with hit it. So I still had to celebrate a PR on the day, but that was a tough one mentally. And, and it really kind of, I think after that race, I was like, you know, I give, gave this a go, but I think we're going to focus on something different and, and no more trials attempts. <laughs> and what exactly happened at CIM that day that caused the the imbalances that led to the cramping and ultimately the time that was mm-hmm. just outside the window? Yeah, so I didn't realize that noon had a uh, electrolyte mix that had carbs in it. And so I was taking it thinking it had zero grams of sugar and it had 15 grams of sugar. <laughs> uh, so... I was feeling with a lot of carbs that I didn't know about. And then on top of a high adrenaline race, and I think it was raining on the day. So my hamstrings were cramping because you're like sort of slipping every step. And once you're above that like 250 glucose range, which I'm pretty sure I I was, you're just stripping your muscles of, of water. So they're just bound to cramp. So you said, that's it. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> well, yep. we are, people already we know, are. you know, we're just skipped to the last page. So people kind of know how this story went. So just tell me about the either the evolution or revolution that occurred within you, your training, maybe some of the communications with people that support you in running, where you went from, I'm not doing that anymore to like, oh, hold on a second. I'm actually going to be running three marathons in six months. Yeah. So I moved back to Albuquerque and... Then COVID happened, but um, at the time I was focusing just more on strength training, getting the speed back, having a blast, kind of more soccer focused workouts and jumping in soccer and and just shorter stuff. Uh, So got that base back that really started my, I think, love for exercise in general. And when races started to come back, I jumped in a couple of like 5Ks and and did well in those. And and then I'm like, okay, well, let's start doing long runs again. Started loving the long run distance. I joined uh, Duke's track club here. A lot of them are marathoners as well. And, and so started to jump into that marathon realm, um, type training again. And, uh, let's see last year. So fast forward a little bit, but last year had kind of a rough time personally and, and some changes, um, went through kind of a long-term relationship ending and so started to put all of that energy into running again and like come january i entered um arizona rock and roll half marathon and so it was something my family was supposed to do my grandparents live out there it turns out my family had to travel so i went out there by myself i was in the middle of ski season hadn't done a ton of like tempo work or anything and just you know I was like nothing to lose let's go into this and just pour like everything into it and see what happens and I ended up running a 116 and that was my first time ever under 120 and a half and um kind of completely surprised myself I I just stuck in a pack that was a little bit out of my league but took a risk and it was a rainy day and, and everyone was kind of upset at the rain and I'm like this is awesome so it gave me that like that fire again. And so I talked to um, a couple of coaches and, and they're like, you got to go for the 237. If you just ran a 116 off and not a ton of training, like, let's just go for it. So we started training, putting that training in place, unfortunately got like this weird, like nerve type back injury. Um, 
it wasn't really an injury, but just it was going to keep me out of grandma's. So I did a Carlsbad 5000 in, in um, San Diego. That was supposed to be my get back into it race. It turns out it was an A race. Uh, had a blast that day. But um, again, like we, grandma's seemed like it, I needed a reset first. So thank goodness, like McCurdy Micro came up because I had tried to apply to every major marathon so I could hit this standard. They were already full uh, because everyone was trying to hit the standard this year. So McCurdy came up and I'm like, awesome. Um, I can get into this. And, uh, so we put that one on the calendar. That was going to be my A race. And, uh, so training for it, training could not have gone more perfect for that race. And I think in a way it was almost too perfect because when I got into McCurdy and, and had a, an amazing 18 miles, when it started to hurt and, and had some of those high blood sugars, I wasn't prepared for it. It hadn't happened in training. And so um, that was my first marathon since 2019. And I think it just humbled me and, and taught me like, you can't just take those last six miles for granted. Um, so we learned a lot at McCurdy. Fortunately, I had already gotten into CIM as a backup option. And and so then went into that one with a lot of learning lessons in terms can of I, my insulin. Can I jump in there real quick? Uh-huh. So, yeah. so what about the McCurdy marathon and running at marathon pace for that long? was different than maybe some like your marathon training um you know long runs so like uh, the mm-hmm. example i think you ran like six, six weeks before mccurdy you did 20 miles with three by three miles at marathon pace with a one mile rest right one mile jogging recovery mm-hmm. so why would and this is just like i know this is just an ignorant question but like also just for the listeners who may not know like why would the issues pop up in the marathon but maybe wouldn't pop up in some of the training runs yeah, great point. So uh, that was a huge learning lesson we had is simulating that high blood sugar spike during training, really hard to do. And um, I wasn't used to taking insulin before my training runs because I don't, I'm not used to those adrenaline highs in training because it's like a, you know, you're in a different state, you're not in a race day state. Uh, so while I had done the work and at altitude, my body wasn't used to I I guess the like highs and the adrenaline spikes you can get. Right. And so what we had to do is simulate that with more feeling and like practice absorbing the higher carb ratio in training, which we weren't necessarily doing. And that's, that's partially on me. I'm like, Oh, like I feel great during this 20, 20 mile long run. I don't need that extra gel. I don't need that extra like uh, glucose. But what I was doing is I wasn't training my body to be able to take in glucose and not spike. Um, so at McCurdy, I was taking in the glucose I was supposed to be taking in, but since I wasn't used to it, I'm spiking a lot and getting dehydrated and, and it wasn't something we had practiced. And who are you consulting with during this time in terms of like, you know, from a coaching perspective or maybe other professionals, like what is the team around mm-hmm. you that you're working with that will help you work through these hurdles and potential problems? Yep. So I uh, had a nutritionist and and she was helping me with my my carb ratio and finding like lower glycemic options. I also had my endocrinologist on board who was like helping me get the blood work so we could make sure that things like my electrolytes and everything were in balance because that could even affect like hydration and everything. And um, then that was also for medications too. So having a certified diabetes educator, they help you with what devices to use. And then my uh, run coach, uh, he was the one like helping me with my training plan and, and like overlaying, I guess that nutrition with the training. And then I also have a strength coach as well. 
So a lot of support. That is for sure. Like how much, how in tune does your running coach need to be with your type one diabetes? Like, is it, how much does that person, and I guess we should name him or her. How much does that person have to know about the, the symbiosis there between the two? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Jesse Armijo is my coach here. And, um, I think it was a big learning lesson for him and myself. He was at first like trusting me with my diabetes management and, uh, we would kind of go back and forth. Okay. This is how the blood sugars were. Did they spike? Did they not spike? And, um, so we were talking about it after, like when in hindsight, we probably should have been planning it beforehand. And that's something we made a change for CIM, but it does, it has to be in lockstep. And, and he's now used to me like texting or calling him like right before, right after, like my blood sugars are low or high. We might need to adjust this uh, workout today and find a different day or, or a uh, better simulate what's going to happen race day. All right. So after McCurdy, you had about six weeks, six or seven, seven, mm -hmm. seven weeks until CIM. So what exactly did that seven weeks entail from a recovery standpoint, but at the same time, kind of like doing a micro build as well, and then yep. figuring out the fueling strategies necessary to have one last shot at the trials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So fortunately, my body had been used to that marathon pace at this point since I did a solid 18 to 20 miles at McCurdy. So we really like just going back to my strengths and I was a little bit, I think my confidence was slightly shot after McCurdy, although it gave me the hope that I knew I could do it, especially if we nailed the, the insulin and, and the diabetes. So immediately filed for a therapeutic use exemption for insulin. So I was able to use insulin during CIM, which helped myself know that I'm not going to have as high of spikes as McCurdy and I can absorb the fuel I'm taking. So put that into place, started practicing with taking insulin before my runs. And then just like in order to boost my confidence, we added in more like track workouts and speed workouts and stuff I really enjoy doing. And so taking like a mental break from just hammering a ton of miles at marathon pace. And so I think all of our workouts are either faster than marathon pace or slightly slower than marathon pace. But with the long run built in to practice my insulin usage. Um, and then I think throw in Thanksgiving in there. So it wasn't perfect. I actually had an infection from my CGM at the time and um, missed one of my final workouts. Uh, I was traveling to Colorado for Thanksgiving and, and had fun time with family. But otherwise, it was a build to, I think, again, like an 85 mile week in there um, right after McCurdy. And I was able to handle it with flying colors and and then that between the therapeutic use exemption gave me confidence at CIM. Which is something that you needed because CIM seemed to be almost the opposite in terms <laughs> of McCurdy, in terms of McCurdy going out really well for a mm -hmm. long time, right? The first two hours going exactly the way you maybe had hoped mm -hmm. it would, whereas CIM seemed to have the opposite effect. So walk me through what happened at CIM in terms of things aren't going great and yet you're able to turn it around. I really still can't tell you why the first 10 miles of CIM just felt laborsome, but um, I mean, it's a marathon. Of course, it's going to not feel easy, but uh, the warm up felt a little off other than I, I was just like, focus on your feeling, focus on taking your insulin, doing everything we planned on. And yeah, gun went off, just kind of had to put my nose in it and just stick to the pack and, and trust that I still had it in me. Um, yeah, focusing on like the one foot in front of the other, like grinding it out. I had a couple of friends with me 
Um, one of them like traveled to McCurdy and to CIM with me and, and just like, like seeing him really helped calm me down. So yeah, again, like I think you can always turn a hard day around and just try to race it and find the happiness in running and believe in yourself and take a risk. Yeah. I mean, that's a great message. That's for sure. Now you are in a situation where you have kind of overcome a lot of challenges, right? You are, especially in terms of like what people may perceive, right? So you have the type one diabetes diagnosis, and yet you're able to compete at the highest level of college sport, right? You are in a field um, which I think we've put a lot of attention into, you know, improving the amount of women who are going into STEM majors, and then ultimately STEM careers. But here you are, you're also doing well in that. You're in a situation where you're going after the trials, you're facing these challenges, and you're going past them and, and ultimately succeeding. So I guess, how? How are you, time <laughs> after time, being able to go go against these hurdles, these challenges, and yet fighting through them? Because so many of us, specifically me in this conversation have you know different challenges in my life in that ultimately either i'm not able to get through or i'm too pessimistic and they, you know they ultimately snowball and things don't go the way that i want you seem to have done a great job of not maybe either either falling into those traps or if you have to ultimately get to the other side of things so i guess generally speaking how do you deal with disappointment hurdles in the in things of that nature to ultimately get to where you want to go in life yeah i think failure is is a part of the story and really like letting those experiences humble you and and i'm i'm a true believer in you can't have the highs and the successes unless you learn from the lows and push through those lows and and find what works for you and and i always remind myself what how would i feel if i didn't push through this or if I just quit and um, like those girls out there that have type one, if they had seen, they, they might not see if you quit because then you just never make it to the start line. Right. But if you don't show up, then you're never going to get to that next level and you're never going to inspire someone that, that you might not know about in the time. Right. And everyone, like you just said, is going through something and, and it might be like an invisible disease. It might be some mental health you might have some family issues, you might have just lost a job. I think finding something that you can work hard at and create a success for yourself at really helps you build that resilience in life and and get through hard things and teaches you how to get through hard things. And um, it might take more than once or twice even, maybe even three times to actually have that success. But it's like, once you get that success, you now see why you had to push through the certain things and learn th- learn lessons along the way. And, and so I, I truly think the failures and um, like for, for type one, for instance, you can't quit. Like I have, I have to take my insulin every day. I can't quit on myself. So taking that mentality into racing, you can't like just finish. Right. And like that finish, even though it might not be to your standard gets you to that next start line. Now, before we get going, I'd love for you to just you know highlight what your nonprofit is doing, the nonprofit you're a part of and helped co-found, because I think it can make a huge difference for a lot of people out there. Yes. So that's Diabetes Sports Project. You can look us up and um, you can either message me on social media or you can email Diabetes Sports Project directly from our website. But we really are about building that community of people with diabetes 
to learn from each other and grow from each other and do hard things with diabetes when uh, you might not have a support network around you and finding the, the technology that works for you. That is great. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show and for everything you're doing from an athletic perspective. It inspires so many you know, people out there, not just people who have type 1 diabetes who are working through it, but people like myself who just see what you're doing and are just so impressed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank <laughs> you.